The sermon text reading today is from Acts 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's always great to be back with you guys. Uh, For some of you, perhaps, uh, I've met you before. You've been here other times I've been here to preach. Maybe for some of you, uh, I'm new to you and you're new to me. Uh, My name is Bob Cargo. I'm the director of church planting at Perimeter Church up in the Johns Creek area. And that actually is the mother church of your congregation. So I was privileged years ago to connect with Scott as he was investigating where will God lead him in ministry and with him and his whole family, so it was uh, great to be around things at that time and to be able to track with you through the years, so glad to be back with you once again. In fact, thinking of the beginning of your church is a great segue for uh, uh, what we're talking about here today. Uh, not too many years before the beginning of this church, about maybe four or five years before that, maybe six, I met a gentleman by the name of Dr. Steve Childers. I had pastored here in Atlanta for many years, had moved to Orlando, And when I moved to Orlando, there was a man who was a professor at a seminary down there who became friends. And it's one of those friendships that's been very, very significant. I don't know if that happens to you sometimes. You you meet someone, and that's good to meet this guy or this gal or whoever it is. And then as the years go on, you realize how significant this this friendship is. Well, Steve Childers was a professor of, of practical and applied theology at the seminary there and has a special love for church planting. And uh, one of the things that Steve has said in his teaching is this. You're going to see it on the screen. I want it to really register in your mind and in your heart. This is it. That God loves to pour out his power and manifest his presence on those who will dare to align radically their purpose with his purposes for the world. Let me read it one more time. Let us sink in. God loves to pour out his power and manifest his presence on those who will dare to align radically their purpose with his purposes for the world. So let me ask you, uh, as an individual, as a family, as a congregation, 
Would you like to see the power of God and the presence of God demonstrated that powerfully for you? You know, I think those are the kind of things sometimes we think, well, hypothetically, I'd love for God to be with me. Hypothetically, I'd love to have God's power exhibited in my life. What does that really mean? Well, one of the things it means is to have our lives radically aligned with what he's up to. The title of today's pastor, or rather today's sermon, is this, What Jesus Continues to Do. What Jesus Continues to Do. And it comes from the first two verses that were read for us just a moment ago. You won't see them on the screen, but let me read them again for you. The gospel, the, the gospel, or rather, the book of Acts is written by Luke, who was also the author of the gospel according to Luke. And this is what he says. In my former book, Theophilus, or Lover of God, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after, receive, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Now, what he's saying here is this, I think. There's my thesis. That the gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do. And the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do. Okay? Does that make sense? The gospel is about what Jesus began to do before his ascension. The book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do through his spirit and through his people. And that's what God wants us to radically align ourselves with today. Today's message has four different parts. I want to go ahead and give you the key words of those four parts so you can be listening for them. They'll be on the screen. And we want to put together all four of these parts into one sentence, one thesis of what this whole message is all about and what I think the book of Acts is about. And here are the key words. They are these, fame and glory, number one. Number two, worshipers. Number three, called out and gathered, assembled together. And fourthly, networks and movements. Networks and movements. So that's where we're going. We're going to take some time on each one of those, okay? First of all is this, fame and glory. Fame and glory. You know, years ago, uh, my wife and I watched American Idol when it started. We've been voices, we've been fans of The Voice for a long time. We still watch The Voice, find it a lot better than American Idol. But I remember back in the day when American Idol first started, you know, as different from The Voice, if you've been a fan of either show, on American Idol, they would not only feature who people who could sing, but in the opening episodes, they would fe- feature people who could not sing at all, right? And it was sometimes humorous, and the more I thought about it, it was sort of cruel to let people get that far, you know, along. But I remember at, the, at that point thinking, I think a lot of these people, probably most people here that are here because they really do think they've got talent, and they want to use that talent. And then for others, maybe this is an issue of, I'm looking for fame and glory. And the reality is this. All of us have something inside of us that drives us in the direction of fame and glory. I actually think that's a reflection of the image of God in us. But here's the problem. We end up looking for fame and glory for ourselves in and of ourselves rather than having our glory be only the reflection of the glory of Jesus. See, our glory is to be like the glory of the moon, not the glory of the sun, right? The glory of the sun is that it's a self-generated glory. In fact, such a great glory, you can't stare at it from 93 million miles away, right? You can't look right at it. It's that powerful. But the glory of the moon is what? The glory of the moon is simply a reflection of the glory of the sun. And that is what God has created for us. Our glory is to simply be a reflection of the glory of Christ. So what is it that Jesus is continuing to do? Well, Jesus is continuing to bring glory to his own name. 
He is continuing to bring glory to his own name. Now, where do we see this in the passage? I'll just call it to your attention. Verse 43 here is God assembled together here at Pentecost. Okay, here's, let me give you the context of what was just read. That here, at, at the day of a big festival of all the followers of Judaism, they come to Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost, a big celebration. And this is the time in which the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the followers of Jesus. They are gathered together in an upper room, and in the beginning of the New Testament era begins with an outpouring of the Spirit. And by the giving of the Spirit, they go to engage all the people with the gospel. And the apostle Peter begins to preach, and a miracle happens so that everybody hears this in their own native tongue. He's speaking, I think, Hebrew or Aramaic, but people are hearing in their own tongue. And there are people that come to believe, and, and this is what he says here in the passage that was read for us. He tells that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. That's the essence of the gospel. And in light of that, repent and believe in him. And if you will, you also will receive the Holy Spirit. And then from that is this gathering of people that start following Jesus together. And that's what Acts chapter 2 describes to us. And as that group of people began following Jesus together, what happened? Well, they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread like the breaking of bread of communion, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And then verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What were they doing? They were worshiping. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness and sincere hearts. They were worshiping at home, I think, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So what's he up to here? He's bringing fame and glory to the name of Jesus. You know, it's in the apostles, it's here in the Acts of the Apostles, that it says only in the name of Jesus can salvation be found. When our kids were little, we had two sons and two daughters, and we were raising them. We tried using very often the children's catechism with them. I don't think we got through the whole catechism with anybody, okay? But we did the first 15 or 20 questions a lot, okay? We'd sort of get started and sort of somewhere else we, we, would, we would end. But the first three questions are just terrific. That is, who made you? God. And what else did God make? All things. And our older daughter would say, all things. Okay? And what else did God make? Or why did God make you and all things? And she would say, for his own dory. (laughs) Well, why has God made anything and everything for his own glory? Why has God made you for his own glory? Why has God created the church for his own glory? What's the purpose of this, this thing is all about ultimately? It is the glory of Jesus. And that is what we are to be all about. There's a quote from a a professor and pastor from years ago, centuries ago, named Henry Skogel. And he said this, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of his love. What is the object of your love? What is it that you adore? This is what you're bringing fame to. And we're made for the fame of the glory of Jesus. Another minister put it this way. You won't see this on the screen, but listen to it carefully. God always and only acts for the glory and fame of his name. For he is the object worthy of highest praise. God's aim in history is to fully display his glory. So what is Jesus continuing to do? He's bringing fame and glory to his own name. Second key concept today is the, is the, is the idea of worshipers. worshipers. How is God bringing fame and glory to the name of Jesus. He's doing it by creating and seeking and finding worshipers. 
That's the idea. He brings glory and fame to the name of Jesus by creating, seeking, and finding worshipers. In John chapter 4, it's one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible. Jesus and his apostles are out traveling together, and they decide to go through Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. There was great hatred between Jews and Samaritans, a lot of animosity. Jews looked down their nose at Samaritans. They thought that they were just unequal to those who were Jewish. And so Jesus shocked his followers by saying, well, on our way to the other side of Samaria, we're not going to go around it like most Jews do. We're going to go through it. And they go through Samaria, and they stop at a certain village there. In the middle of the day, a woman has come out to draw water from the well. And it's unusual. Most of the women will come early in the morning or late in the afternoon to avoid the heat of the day. She's there by herself. And the, the apostles leave Jesus to go into the city to find some food. Jesus stays there. And he begins to talk with her. Now, this was rather shocking. In fact, when the apostles came back, they were, they were sort of scandalized that Jesus would be talking with her. She, a Samaritan, he a Jew, male and female, different genders, wasn't common to have to strike up a you know, casual conversation. And she was probably, uh, be it known, by coming out in the middle of the day like this, someone that didn't, was not befriended by other women. And as it turns out, sort of a, a woman with a bad reputation, so to speak. And so Jesus is engaged talking with her. And he basically says, you come here looking for water to satisfy the thirst of your body. I am the one who will bring a satisfaction to the thirst of your soul. And he begins to talk with her about the needs of her heart. And that he is the one that will satisfy the deepest needs of her heart as the Savior. She tries to distract him with some questions about worship. Well, here's how Jews do it. Here's how Samaritans do it. And Jesus says, wait, a time is coming when God will be seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. There's the idea of this passage. God is seeking and finding worshipers. He's, in fact, who creates them to be his worshipers. And in this very same text, what do we see happening? There's fame and glory to the name of Jesus, because what are these people doing? Every Sabbath, they are gathering to worship together. In fact, day in and day out, they're gathering for worship. In their homes and in the temple, they are worshipers. And this is why it is so significant. My friends, you were made to be a worshiper. All people worship something. Whatever you give the greatest affection of your heart to be, that is what you worship. And worship is not simply singing songs and quoting liturgy and hearing a sermon. That's involved in what we believe is scriptural worship. But worship really is giving your heart to whatever you love the most. That is worship. And we are created to be worshipers of the Lord. That's real worship. Remember hearing the story from a man who uh, was a minister of one of the churches here in Atlanta for many years, and then he worked with college students for decades after that. And he told the story that when he was pastoring a church, he took a group of those people on a mission trip somewhere in Asia. I don't remember exactly where, but I do remember him telling the story that they were standing outside of a Buddhist temple, and he and his associates from here in Atlanta stood there and just in silence watched people going in and out of this Buddhist temple. And finally, the minister spoke up to the person next to him, and he said, I feel like I'm at a crime scene. The person said, what do you mean you feel like you're at a crime scene? He said, these people are being robbed of the experience of worshiping the one true God. And God is being robbed from receiving the affections and adoration of these people made in his image. A crime scene. We were made to be worshipers. And as Dr. John Piper has put it well, missions exist because worship doesn't. The ultimate goal of missions is worship. 
We want red, hot, passionate worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation, not only here on earth right now, but forever and ever and ever and ever and ever gathered in the new heavens and the new earth, giving praise to the name of Jesus, worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the end game of all of this. God has created us to be worshipers. And what Jesus continues to do is this. He works for the glory and fame of his own name by creating, seeking, and finding worshipers. The third main idea here is the term... Oops, I'm about to lose my microphone, sorry. The third main idea here is the term called out and assembled together. Called out and assembled together. This means church. The word church in the New Testament, the Greek word, is the word ekklesia. Ek means out. Kaleo means to call. So a church is literally the called out ones. The called out ones. Where do we get the idea that they're assembled together? Well, the word ekklesia had a Greek secular meaning before it became known as the term for the church. In the Greek city-states, when they would have a meeting of the citizens of the city, that was the ecclesia. The ecclesia was the gathering of the called ones. So they would put word out to all the citizens of that city-state, you're called out to be assembled together. And that's the meaning of the word church. So here's the idea. God is working for the glory and fame of the name of Jesus by creating, seeking, and finding worshipers. But they're not just worshipers one by one. They're not just worshipers family by family. They are worshipers that are called out and assembled together in churches. A church is an outpost of the kingdom of Jesus. It's like there is a real true kingdom that will last forever. It's the kingdom where Jesus is king. But there's an opposition kingdom. And that opposition kingdom in this earth now often looks like it's winning. But the outpost of those who are loyal to the true king, those are called churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an outpost of that kingdom. And it's very hugely important that we understand that's what the Great Commission is all about. See, in the book of Acts, we not only have stories of the conversions of individuals, the story of the book of Acts is the story of planting one church after another. The Great Commission is not simply about the conversions of individuals or families. The Great Commission is about the creation of these little outposts of the kingdoms, church planting, starting one church after another. Because in these outposts, it's what, the ta- it's what that, a little bit of what heaven is going to be all about. It's a foretaste of what heaven is all about. It's the people of God gathered together. Let me give an illustration of what church is all about. I mentioned Dr. Steve Childers, and about maybe six or seven years after I first met him, uh, he began to do uh, training for church planters in a way that he had not previously. And so he invited myself and a couple of other people to help him to conduct this training. And so for a number of years, I was flying back to Orlando a couple of times a year to help Steve with this training. And on one of those trips, uh, I flew back in on a Friday afternoon and called Margaret in. And, you know, what are you all up to as a family? She said, we're actually up at the Mall of Georgia. We're shopping for things for the kids. Why don't you come on up here and join us? Well, okay, it's Friday afternoon. I've just flown into the airport. They're at the Mall of Georgia. You know where that is probably. That's a, that's a terrible trip, right? On a Friday afternoon, that's a terrible trip. 
I mean, it, I think if I remember correctly, it took me two hours to get from the airport to the Mall of Georgia. But I leave the airport, I drive, I drive, I drive, I drive, I drive. I get up to the Mall of Georgia, find a place to park. It's very busy. I call Morgan Ann. Well, where are you guys? Well, we're in the food court. So I go to the food court and find them there. And as I come to the food court, Morgan Ann greets me. She says, they're about to close. You don't have time to eat. You just go with this son to find him something to, to wear. He's looking for blue jeans. I'll go with our daughter. Go. Well, let me tell you, uh, I was not really a fan of being told you don't have time to eat, right? So <laughs> uh, food is really important to me, especially when it's, you know, maybe 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening by this time. I haven't eaten since lunch, you know. So as I'm heading out of the food court, you know how they have these people representing the little restaurants and food court, and they're standing out there with little samples, right? Little appetizers and samples from their store, whatever it is. And what's the whole idea? That as you get a little little tidbit from their store, you'll decide to go there and eat. Well, I decided I was going to hit five of those things on the way out of the food court, right? So every time I went past one, we're taking the long way out of the food court because I'm hitting as many appetizer plates as I can. Uh, so what is a church? A church is simply this. A church is an appetizer for the main meal of God's people in heaven forever and ever. We are forever going to be gathered with all the saints. We're going to be there in the presence of Jesus and people from every tribe and tongue and nation loving one another and together giving praise to him. Now, I've got to confess that in my life, I'm not much of a crier. In fact, to my shame, there have been times in our lives that a time of sadness, a time of heartbreak, something else, and everybody else is crying, and I'm being Mr. Stoic. I'll get emotional later, but for some reason, I bottle it up right there at that moment. But I'll tell you where I do cry fairly often, and that is in worship. One of the places I cry more than anywhere else is when the people of God are gathered to worship. And something is said in the preaching of the Word, or something is said by something we sing, and it hits me deeply. And I'm gathered there with God's people in my church, whatever church that is, and it moves me. You see, we need to be in churches. You know, there's a real trend these days that followers of Jesus, people who profess to be followers of Jesus, are not getting aligned with churches. They just sort of pop into whatever church they feel like going to this week, or even worse, they just say, well, I'm just going to go online to worship most of the time. Occasionally I'll go, and I'll sort of shop which church I want to go to. Folks, God didn't create us to follow Jesus like that. He created us to follow Jesus together as covenanted members of local churches. And that's your need, and that's your blessing. You know, C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous converts to Christianity, right? Such a, a, a hugely intellectual literary figure in Great Britain, came to know Christ out of atheism, and God brought him sort of kicking and streaming into the kingdom. But after becoming a follower of Jesus, a man of great influence, a number of his lectures were assembled together in a book called God in the Dock. And this is what he said. He said, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my room and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and the gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, hear what he said, my conceit just began to peel off. And now let me just pause and say, for most of us, if you've never felt the need really to be part of a church, 
That's an exhibit of conceit, according to, according to Lewis. He said, I realized that the hymns, which were, in fact, just six-rate music, were nonetheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in the elastic side boots and the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to even clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. You see what he's saying here? Here was this well-educated, affluent man would never have dreamed of buying elastic side boots. No, good, expensive leather boots would have been the fare for C.S. Lewis. But here's a poor farmer. Here's a man of a different socioeconomic class. But he realized, that man I respect. I need him. And the truth of the matter is we need each other. Now, you may be thinking, Bob, churches are so messy. And they are. Churches are very messy. Heard a joke many years ago that went like this. A man was shipwrecked on an island. He was the only person on that island. He was there for years. Finally, somebody, a boat came along. He waved it down, and he got off of the island. And as he, they sailed away from the island, they noticed, the people on the boat, there were three buildings on the island. And they said, well, tell us about these three buildings. He said, well, that's my house, okay? Well, that second building is the church I go to. Well, what's the third building? Oh, it's the church I used to go to. So, good. Only one guy on the island, but there had been a church split. That's the point. All right? Uh, it's true. Churches are messy, but churches are still God's way of bringing us more and more into the image of Christ. We need one another. We were never called to follow him alone. So how is indeed, what is Jesus doing these days? <laughs> well, what he's doing is bringing fame and glory to his own name by creating, seeking, and finding worshipers and pulling them together in these local churches, these local congregations called out, assembled together. And even before I go to the next point, let me be sure to say this. The reality is, Churches are led by fallen people. And so you may be a person here who has a lot of church hurt. You've been hurt by the church. You've been church hurt by its leaders. And if so, I would just say as a representative of, of the name of Jesus, please forgive the church. Please forgive those who sinned against you. There are those who don't actually know Jesus but have become leaders of churches. And they bring a lot of hurt to a lot of people. And there are those who are leaders of the church and members of churches that do belong to Jesus. But they are way behind in terms of what God is doing to bring them into alignment with the spirit of Jesus and the character of Jesus. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that have been hurt by those who claim to be followers of Jesus. If that is the case, let me ask you to do this. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. May he be the one that you love. And may you follow him together with other broken people, broken like you, but seeking to be healed, just like you want to be healed. Called out, assembled together. The last main point is this, the idea of networks and movements. Networks and movements. You see, the rest of the book of Acts is about what I would call a network and a movement. <laughs> what we see in this passage is the formation of the church of Jerusalem, a church of thousands of people. They met in homes for worship. They met together for worship. And then God broke that all apart. Persecution came to Jerusalem. And those believers, except for the apostles, they scattered. But God had a purpose in that. And the purpose was the planting of churches. And so the book of Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel to the planting of churches. The gospel goes to the Samaritans. It goes to the Gentiles in Caesarea. It goes to Ethiopia by way of an Ethiopian official. 
It goes then to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And the first missionaries were sent out by the church of Antioch. And then from there, the church, the gospel goes into Europe. It goes to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. And where does the book of Acts end? It it ends in Rome. Paul is in prison in Rome. Now, that sounds like a weird, you know, part of the story to end things with, right? Why end this whole book that Paul is in prison in Rome? Well, though he was a prisoner, the gospel was spreading because he made it to Rome. And it was a way of saying that even Rome, the center of the empire at that time in the Mediterranean world, the gospel has come here. And what the book of Acts is all about is the movement and the network of planting churches. Let me give you two quotes about the centrality of church planting. This is by a guy named William Tinsley in his book called Upon This Rock. He said, to remove the strategy of church planting from the New Testament would, in effect, remove all Scripture beyond the Gospels. Have you ever thought about that? The apostles saw the expansion of new churches in the world as the pivotal cog through which the life-transforming power of God would be transferred to the world. I like the way he's put it. If, if, if this represented the New Testament, here are the four Gospels here. Well, I'll put it this way for you, left or right. Here are the four Gospels here. Everything else after that is about church planting. The book of Acts is like the historical book that goes underneath all these epistles, which are letters. The letters are letters, the epistles are letters from the apostles written either to churches or to fellow ministers. And if you looked at it historically, here's the, here are the four Gospels, here's Acts, and here are all these letters that stand upon it. And all of this is not only about people being converted by the Gospel, it's about the planting of new churches through the Gospel. And it is the witness of individuals and churches that God will use to change the world and to take the gospel wherever it goes. The second quote is this by Tim Keller. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, has said, The vigorous continual planting of new churches is the single most crucial strategy for, one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches in any city. Nothing else. Not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, or renewal process will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. So here's my charge to you. I know that the leaders of your church want your church to be a church planting church. I want to say I applaud you with that heart and with that desire. Living things reproduce. And this is a church that is alive. So I commend you, I applaud you, I say, way to go, that you want to be a reproducing church. And as you think about that individually, think how might God use you in that process. For me personally, I first got interested in church planting by attending Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama when I was a college student. It had been planted by Frank Barker about 10 or 15 years before I got there. It was already a church of about 1,000 people. And just the quality of ministry of Barwood made me start thinking about church planting. And then from afar, I followed the ministry of Randy Pope, who was a friend from my hometown, who came here to plant Perimeter Church. And my interest in church planting grew. I went to seminary in Chicago, and I immediately, besides going to seminary classes, I started attending church planting churches, churches that were being recently planted, or maybe some that had been planted years ago. But it got my interest. And then my last year of seminary, Bud and I, planted Covenant Presbyterian Church on the near north side of Chicago. I went from there to Oxford, Mississippi, where Ole Miss is, 
planted a church there, and that's where I met my wonderful wife. We met on a blind date there. The best thing that happened in Oxford was meeting her, no doubt about it. But a church got started, and then God called us together to plant in-town community church under perimeter, 13 wonderful years leading in-town. I pastored a church in Orlando, and then since 2003 have served as perimeter's d- d- director of church planting. So a number of years ago, I realized, except for those four years in Orlando, everything else I've done has been pretty much about church planting. And I love it for these reasons. It is the way, the most effective way to bring people to Christ, to bring renewal to existing churches. You're a recent church plant. You may be here so recently, you don't even know that you're a recent church plant about 15 or 16 years ago. But God is continuing to work in you and through you. So I just commend you in this way. Be thinking in your life about how you can join in this mission of God. He wants to pour out his presence. He wants to pour out his power and manifest his presence on those who will be aligned. So be aligned with him in furthering the gospel, seeing the conversion of individuals, seeing the planting of new churches, all for the fame and the glory of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we do thank you and praise you that uh, you have a powerful, powerful thing going on through the world. And Lord, you have called us to be a part of that. We thank you for that. We ask you now that you would guide us as we seek to follow you. And Lord, may we also be aware that we are the salt first. Lord, we thank you that you've come seeking us. You've come in your mercy and grace to us. And then in fact, this mission exists because of your love for every person made in your image. And we pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to go into our time of confession. And I was just thinking of Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So let's just take a few moments to do just that. Let the Lord search our hearts and confess to him. Okay, let's confess together. Father, we confess that we too often live for our own fame and glory. We give the deepest affections of our hearts to the creation rather than to you, our creator and our redeemer. May we instead be enthralled with the glory and the beauty of Jesus. We confess that in our self-centeredness and self-sufficiency, we neglect our brothers and sisters in Christ. We neglect our need for them and our need for us. Please forgive us for these sins of commission and omission. Today, we look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. Witness to us. And may your grace lead us to proclaim in word and deed the good news of Jesus. May we celebrate what it means to follow Christ together with your people, church by church, throughout the world. Amen.
As we come to communion,